The reading tonight comes from Luke chapter 23, verse 43. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. It is another great opportunity we have all been blessed with to be able to assemble as we are tonight and to worship in spirit and in truth, to sing these songs that we have and go through all the other aspects of worship. It's truly, truly a blessing for each of us. Lessons from the Crucifixion, Part 6. Uh, thus far, in the, on the last Sunday uh, evenings of, of the month, since January it has been now, we have looked at uh, lessons from the Crucifixion, detailing it in piece by piece and section by section. And tonight, as a way of introduction, we'll recap those lessons. In Lesson 1, we looked at the Lord's Supper, as Jesus instituted that initially. And also we looked at the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we uh, examined those and applied those to our lives and how to uh, take, partake of the Lord's Supper appropriately as the New Testament would describe for us and as well as, well as we examined our prayer life and what prayer means to us as Christians. In Lesson 2, we examined the arrest and the trial of our Lord, the injustice of it, His demeanor in it, and how we should apply those things to our lives as well when we are faced with, with difficulties in our lives. Lesson three, we looked at a kingdom not of this world, that marvelous church that you and I are a part of. We detailed that. We detailed the conversations that Jesus had with Pilate on that occasion, as well as looked at those requirements into that blessed kingdom. In lesson four, we looked at the physical aspect of the, of the crucifixion itself, the terror involved in the scourging, the physical condition of our Lord, the nails that were driven into his hands and feet, and as, as he hung there on that cross, and then we looked and examined the love of God on that occasion, also tying some New Testament prophecies in with that. In lesson five, we looked at some more prophecies and the first statement that our Lord made while hanging on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We looked at forgiveness, we, detailed, we looked at that in detail and we applied forgiveness to our lives, how we should forgive others and how God forgives us, of course, through the blessed Son and His blood. And tonight, Lesson 6, we will be looking at Paradise. Went one too many there. The second statement, as the gospel account, accounts record for us, you would be turning with, with me in Luke chapter 23, Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 39, verses 39 through 43. We're going to be looking at, at paradise tonight. Beginning in verse 39 and reading through 43, the text says, as, Luke, as the Holy Spirit through Luke describes for us, And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing that thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt thou be with me 
in paradise. Much description, much controversy, and much discussion has taken place over this set of verses. We're going to highlight some of that tonight. But beginning back in verse 39, of course, those two thieves that were on Jesus's, one on his right and one on his left, this one, it appears, came to his senses. He was, he was repent. He had a repentant heart. And the other one, of course, riled on him, the text says. Now, previously, in another uh, gospel account, both of them, at one time, towards the outset and start of the crucifixion, both of them reviled, railed on him. But this one came to himself. In verse 40, he says, But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing that thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. These two thieves, these criminals, as the gospel accounts record for us, they were being crucified by, of course, that Roman law and the, the deeds that they had done. But this man knew Jesus in his state. Maybe he had heard of them. Maybe he had heard some things about him and, and within his popularity and within his public preaching ministry. But he knew he had done nothing amiss, verse 41. And in his repentant heart, in verse 42, he, he turns to Jesus and says, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Now, admittedly, the kingdom, as you and I know it, is that spiritual realm known as the church, as the New Testament lays that out for us. Perhaps this thief may have thought that that kingdom was a physical one, that Jesus was going to come down from the cross, maybe, and rule and reign, destroy all those that were there about him, and save them and save those, and rule over a physical kingdom. But you and I know that's not what why Jesus' purpose was to come to this earth. His primary mission was to come to this earth, die on the cross, and establish his spiritual kingdom, the church, the ecclesia, as you and I are a part of it. Jesus said that is very is his self in verse 43 as he said and Jesus said unto him verily I say unto thee today shalt thou be with me in paradise the thief knew he was fixing to die Jesus knew he was fixing to die and being the perfect one he, he knew where he was going to go he had already foretold that he would be in this realm known as paradise after he passed from this life So we can ask the question, where did Jesus and the thief go after death? Before we answer that question in its, entirely, in its entirety, I thought it wise to start with what occurs at conception. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we are given that monumental statement from God, from really the Godhead, when he says, Let us make man in our own image. In every human being, at the time of conception, when a male sperm meets a female egg, a soul, God unites a soul in that body, and it will never cease to be. 
the first part of First Corinthians, or I'm sorry, Second Corinthians, chapter five, verse one, highlights that reality. But with conception and with physical life, also comes a departure known as death. Death is something that is an appointment that we must all face. There, in religious circles, in our religious world, it is oftentimes taught apart from what the scriptures teach. But for you and I, our trust and our hope is found in God's New Testament. But when when it comes time for each of us to meet our death, a principle is found there in Genesis chapter 35, verse 18, upon Rachel's death. And as her soul was departing, the text says, so death is merely not a, an ending of that life. That soul, that spirit that housed that physical body will go on to live elsewhere as it departs from the physical body. And in James chapter 2, verse 26, For as the body without the spirit is said to be dead. And we all know this passage well in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And as it is appointed unto man once to die, then after this the judgment. So then where do these spirits go? We all know everyone dies, both the wicked and those that are faithful, those that are righteous in God's sight. So where do they go? Taking from this statement in verse 43 of Luke 23, that place is paradise, at least for the righteous. And that marvelous truth is laid for us a few chapters back in in the book of Luke. Let's turn back to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Jesus gave this in rather vivid detail for us that ought to not leave any of us without a shadow of a doubt where we go when we die. In Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19, we'll not read this whole description in its entirety, but we all know very well that there was a rich man in Lazarus, and they both died. Lazarus, we all know, was found faithful, righteous in the sight of God, but that rich man was wicked. He was unfaithful in the sight of God. But they both went to this place known as Hades. Now, the King James Version uses the word hell, taken from the original Greek word. Hades and Gehenna are not the same place. I think we all understand that with the King James rendering. Hades is a place that is comprised of two compartments, and it's said to be the place of disembodied spirits. So we may wonder, the New Testament highlights this. What about the Old Testament? And it does. The Greek word shio that we find in the Old Testament means the same place. It means the place for disembodied spirits. So with these two compartments in Hades... Jesus, the text says, going back to his statement on the cross to that, to that thief, he would be in paradise. 
So we can conclude that paradise is a place of bliss, a place of comfort. Or also described in Luke 16 in that description, Abraham's bosom, it's also called. But there's another compartment. We mentioned it earlier about the wicked. Where do the wicked go when they die? They too go to Hades. But it's not paradise. It's where the rich man went. And that Greek word from the original language is used throughout the New Testament and other passages. It's known as Tartarus. Not hell, not Gehenna hell, but Tartarus. That is that compartment also described as torments in that description. So we can conclude now that the righteous go to this place to await judgment and the wicked go to this place to await judgment, just as Lazarus and just, just as the rich man did. And this chart on this next slide, we have noted it before in a previous lesson, but I felt it uh, beneficial for us tonight to look at it again. Again, this is from the World Video Bible School uh, from Don Blackwell and his team. They, they produced this material, and they have a video on this that details this, details Hades as well as the Day of Judgment in its entirety. And I found it interesting as I was preparing for this lesson that this video, as it's posted on YouTube, we all may have watched it ourselves, it has 1.9 million views. I found that rather amazing in our world which we live with such confusion that those, men, that those many people could be brought to the truth and realize what happens at death. But at any rate, going back to our study, when considering the world, we all know that it is comprised of really two compartments. There's the saved, and then there's the lost. Jesus said forevermore in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth to life, and few there be that find it. And of course, that's highlighted departing from the world, going into Hades, that narrow gate, as well as the wide gate. Tonight, may we each ask of ourselves, what path are we taking? We may be New Testament Christians, but are we on that path to lead us to paradise and will ultimately lead us to heaven? So some also draw, draw into the question, so at the time of death, they, under, they may understand the concept of Hades, but they may say, hasn't God already judged the person? So what is there a point for the day of judgment? And yes, there is some truth to that statement. Once a person dies, closes their eyes in death, their eternity is sealed of where they're ultimately going to be. It's not the same as in Hadean Rim as it will be after the day of judgment, but that person will ultimately know where they're going to spend eternity. Those that are in paradise will be ushered into heaven after the day of judgment, and those that are in torment will have an eternity in Gehenna hell forevermore. 
Another thing that's important to note here in this place, this has also been taught with rather confusion in religious in religion in the religious world, is conscience after death. Is a person conscious when they die, or are they in a place where they're just asleep all the time? Well, we ultimately know, going back to that example in Luke chapter 16, that that rich man knew very well where he was. He urged to have his tongue cooled with water and some elements of, diminish, of diminishing the pain that he was in. But also, the rich uh, Lazarus was in that place of paradise. Again, he was in a place of comfort, and he knew it. He was away from all the cares of the world. He had had a life that had been hard here on the earth, but all that was over with. We also can notice that great gulf that's fixed as that description in, as Jesus gave us in Luke chapter 16. Those that would want to pass from one to the other can't. Those that are in torments that would so desire to pass from there to paradise, they can't. And from those that are paradise can't go to the ones in torments or Tartarus. But it seems to me that also comes by the way of memory. Remember that rich man also, he had five brothers back on this earth. And he begged Father Abraham to send, send them for he can warn them not to come to this place. In verse 29, but it said, with that Old Testament example, they have Moses and the prophets. Verse 29, let them hear them. So is there life after death? Absolutely. Is it comprised of two compartments? Yes, for the wicked and for the faithful, for the righteous of all time, of those of the Old Testament as well as those of the New Testament. So coming out, after death, after one passes away, however long that may be until the day of judgment. What about judgment itself? Although we won't read these descriptions in their entirety because we all know them so well, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 and 51, as well as Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 46, Jesus there des describes the destruction of Jerusalem that would occur in AD 70. He would describe the judgment itself, the end of the world. He would describe the that all nations would be gathered, gathered before him and that each person, every person that has ever lived throughout all generations of the Old Testament from the first century until now that we're living under will be present on that day. Multiplied billions and billions and billions of people will be standing before Christ and their eternity will be for them. And in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 1 and 4 as well as 1 Corinthians 15 verses 51 through 54 we are given a description of a physical body versus an incorruptible body. If I may summarize or paraphrase those verses, the description goes like this. 
those that are in Hades, their souls, on the day of judgment, they will be housed with an incorruptible body. John chapter 5, verses 28 through 29, as well as 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 44, highlight that truth. But as for those that remain on the earth at the time of the Lord's second coming, the day of judgment, those too, it's said, will be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. They too will be housed with an incorruptible body that will never die, that will never decay, prepared for judgment and for eternity. One may ask what that body's going to look like. I, I don't know. There is no, we can't know what that body looks like with our physical eye, but may we rest our mind in the truth that one day that will occur. All of us are going to be housed in a uncorruptible body that will be prepared for everlasting life or that will be prepared for everlasting damnation. Again, tonight, which one are we traveling on? Which road or which path are we taking? Are we, could it be said that we are amongst the, those that are going into the wide gate or those that are traveling the narrow gate? But we can also appreciate upon that day of judgment there will be an individual sentencing given. We will all answer for our own selves. I will answer for Andrew Scott. You will answer for you. In Romans chapter 11, 14, verses 11 and 12, the text says, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give an account to himself, to God. The sister passage to that ties the individual judgment also, for, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that those may receive the reward given whether they have done good or bad. And then after that sentencing, after the sentence has been given to each of us, everyone will stand before their eternity. And we can also appreciate that Hades, as well as death, Hades is going to be destroyed. According to Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, that spiritual realm, that spiritual, those spiritual compartments will be destroyed. And 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 15, verse 26 tells us that death, the last enemy, will be destroyed on that occasion. And Jesus also promised that. It'll be a life, spiritual life, unending and everyone will have that sentence before them so with that thought in mind we've noticed it before but now's a good time to bring it back to the forefront of our thinking degrees of reward in heaven as well as degrees of reward in hell and we'll close the lesson with that thought tonight degrees of reward in heaven is a thing that we should all appreciate. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 
41, as well as chapter 25, verses 14 through 30, specifically that, that set of verses, Jesus there gives a description of the parable of the talents. We may remember that one had five, the other had two, and the other one was given one. But the, what they had gained, the first two from those, the, the, one, the two that had the five and the one that had the two, they were not in equal value, but we may notice that the Lord was pleased with both of them, with what they had gained and what they had, were able to obtain using those talents that God had given them. And the Lord was pleased. And he, he said to them, Enter into the joys of thy Lord. But the one talent man, we all know, was displeasing in the eyes of God with, what he, with how he had used his talents. Another description is given in Luke chapter 19, verses 12 through 27 about the parable of the pounds. Now this one's a little bit different than the parable of the talents, but it appears the principle here is the same. Again, he was pleased with two of them, even though what they had gained was not the same, indicating that there will be degrees of reward and punishment. I think it would feel safe for each of us to say, as hard as it is living the Christian life in this world, that each of us would be happy with the lowest station that we could possibly earn in heaven if we make it there, if we're found faithful. But for us in our Christian life, we are going to also be judged with what we could have done with the, with, the, with the work of the kingdom and the work that God has given us to stand for his truth in every situation that we may be faced in, whether we may be persecuted by the laws of the land or otherwise, we still have to remain faithful even unto death. They did in the first century we may face something similar with the, with the laws of our land. We don't know that. But, we, but it's, also, it's on the hearts and minds of us at times, I'm sure, with the degrading character that our world is in. But may we always stay faithful. May we always continue to have our eyes on the goal of heaven so that we can spend eternity with God forever. But also, what about degrees of punishment? There are degrees of reward in heaven, but degrees of punishment. This chart is my attempt to at least highlight that truth and how the Bible describes those distinctions between the degrees of punishment. That first column, you may notice, that will be judgment rendered to those of the Old Testament, those under the old law, the patriarchal law, the law of Moses, and for Israel, the law of, of, of Judaism, of course. That truth is highlighted in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, where the judgment seen there is given, and the books were open. That book, those that some on that, in, uh, that occasion under the Old Testament, will be judged from that book. And of course, you and I fall into either one of the last two categories. Judgment under the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 7, you may notice at the top of that slide in that middle column, verses 21 through 23, 
Jesus made a statement there about the city that they were dwelling in. And it's going, he said it would be more tolerable for Solomon and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it would be for them because they rejected him. They rejected his teaching. We may remember the perfect one hadn't come yet under the old law. And now that he has, those that reject him, they're going to be judged more harshly. They're going to be judged more severely than those would that under the old law because the law wasn't perfect yet. And the next chapter over, in chapter 11, verses 21 through 24, Tyre and Sodom. Sodom is the same description is given. It's going to be more tolerable for them than it would be for, for those that reject him of Jesus' day and of our day as well. The world we know, by and large, rejects Christ. Our co-workers, our friends, our families... If we reject Christ, we're going to be judged more harshly, those that have never obeyed at least, than those in the Old Testament. But what about the realm of denominationalism? They're going to be fall into this category as well. Being of a member of a, of a body, of a group of believers that the Lord never did establish, that was established by man. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, that description's given as well as 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 and 10, upon the Lord's return. And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody that does not obey the gospel ultimately will be eternally lost, and they're going to be judged more severely than those of the Old Testament. Because they had access, they would have had access to the blood of Christ, but they rejected it. But there's another column, and this hits each of us home because it's the church. Disobedient Christians. And I'm not talking about Christians of a denomination, I'm talking about Christians of the church that we read about in the pages of the New Testament, the Church of Christ. The descriptions given in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, of how it's said on that occasion, if you would be turning there, look at those, look at that set of scriptures in its description. I'll begin reading in verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutants of the world, through the knowledge of the of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. Verse 21 should strike each of us, at, uh, each of us for, at home. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than for after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But, as, but it is happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to its own vomit again and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Once we make... The confession to serve Jesus, to obey the gospel, and we turn away from it. We continue in a life of rebellion, in sin, or any other character. We are going to be judged with the most severe punishment 
that God has in store. We fall, if we're found in that category, we would fall into the most dangerous situation that anybody in this earth could be in. That parable in Matthew chapter 13, verses 37 through 43 is given about the wheat and the tares. Remember, the wheat and the tares were, they were both in the kingdom. But the punishment that was given to the tares again, would fall under this category. Also, a few verses later, in verses 47 and 50 of the same chapter, that same description is given again about the church likened to a net, gathering up every kind, but then it had good and bad individuals in it. Jesus used fish on that occasion to demonstrate that remarkable truth, didn't he? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 29 highlights those that trotten underfoot the Son of God. And also that unforgettable scene in Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48 about the description of those that shall be beaten with few stripes versus those that shall be beaten with many stripes. Those that knew the way of the Lord and obeyed not the voice of the master's voice shall be beaten with few stri many stripes versus those that never didn't have a knowledge of the, the law or the, the master's voice shall be beaten with few stripes. Again, that distinction is made. Now, I've highlighted this tonight, this chart with literal, actual flames and for us to appreciate the degrees that is the New Testament presents to us. We don't know, and I, I pray that none of us ever have to know what punishment from God would look like. We know it's going to be a place of outer darkness. There's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there are going to be individuals in each of these three categories for an eternity that will experience this in their own personal judgment. Are you going to fall into that category? I pray that each of us will think wisely if we are, and that will come to the Lord. In our conclusion tonight, this chart's before us once more. Which path are you on? Obeying the gospel in the Christian life is certainly not a game. We will fool ourselves on the day of judgment if we think it's just something we can simply get out of if we don't like it. My friend, judgment for that person, if they think that way, will be the most severe. But yet, many of those today go through this life, they claim it, they pretend it's no big deal when it's the most important decision that anyone can make. Have you obeyed the gospel? If you've not, you can tonight. We will help you in that way. It is required of you if you've never obeyed. You must hear the word, Romans 10, 17. We've done that tonight. You must believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Mark 16, 15. You must repent of the sins in your life, Luke 13, 3. 
repenting of them and t making a commitment not to go back in them. You must confess his wonderful name as the Son of God, Romans 10, 9. And lastly, you must be baptized in water for the remission of sins. You're baptized into his death. You are baptized into Christ. And he'll add you to the church, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And if you remain faithful until death, Revelation will be, uh, heaven will be your home, Revelation 2, 10. But maybe you have allowed a life of sin to keep you from God. Maybe you've lapsed back, lapsed back into sin. Maybe you know that that judgment, the most severe, will be your state if the Lord was to come back tonight or if you was to pass from this life. We can pray for you. We'll pray with you, just as was done for Simon the Sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, verses 22 and 24. If we can help you tonight in either of these ways, won't you come now while together we stand and sing?